If you haven't been with us before, we're walking through the book of Genesis, passage by passage, and then today, this is where we land, chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to try to make it all the way to chapter 6, verse 8. This is where we're heading. So let's pray, and we'll move in that direction. Pray with me. Father, thank you for allowing us to worship you just now, and just sing praises to your name. And God, we could say that to you again and again, that we, we love you, Lord. We love you and we want to bow down before you. God, even, even jealous in our souls, Lord, for this, these false gods of leaders being worshipped in another place. Jealous, Lord, that you would be worshipped, you and you alone. And I praise you, God, for that day you promise is coming. Where you're going to come back with angels and ten thousands of saints. Lord, you're going to come back. And every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that you're Lord. God, I praise you for that day that's coming. We say, come Lord Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would give us even now as we open your word. Please God, give us a glimpse into that now. A glimpse into what happens when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord. That you're Savior. That you're King. God, as we open your word. Pierce our hearts. Help us to understand, Lord. Thank you, God, that you're so faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6 to verse 8 is where we're headed. Before we read it, before we do that, I just want to tell you some things about the... The um, difficulty of this passage, there's some difficulties found in this section of Scripture. Um, first off, many people don't know what to do with a whole chapter of genealogies. What do you do with so-and-so, we got so-and-so, we got so-and-so, we got so-and-so, what do you do with that? So that's one difficulty here in chapter 5. And then the second difficulty here is chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Many people don't know... What in the world do you do with chapter 6, verse 1 through 4? This is that passage of Scripture where you got the sons of God taking the daughters of men. you got these things called Nephilim that come through these relationships. And these kind of things are going down. And many, many people don't know what to do with this passage of Scripture. So there's a lot of difficulties in the Scripture that we're looking at today. Okay, Let me tell you a couple of things. So about those genealogies, I want to give you a quote. From James Montgomery Boyce. And I'm mainly giving you this quote so he gets in trouble and not me. Okay? This is about genealogies. He says this. I do not know why it is that in the minds of some people, the most boring thing about the Bible is the genealogies. You can already tell he's mad. Perhaps it is because they do not read them. <laughs> Sorry. People, people who will pour over pages of fine print stock quotations or list of baseball players and their batting average will not read the Bible's genealogies. Yet these are in the Bible and are therefore part of that revelation which is said to be all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. A good little sharp point on genealogies. So we're walking into genealogies today and I agree with James Montgomery Boyce. And then a couple of things about chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, the difficulties that are there. 
Ken Hughes said this. He's a commentator on this on the book of Genesis. He said, this is the most debated text in Genesis. And then Kenneth Matthews, another commentator, said this. He said, unquestionably, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. So this is what Dustin left me with. <laughs> he planned it, I know it. No, I'm kidding. I, I really believe that God wants to speak to us in this text. I, God has shown me a lot, okay? Even though I tell you all that, God has taught me a lot. He's shown me a lot, and I believe He wants to do that for all of us. So I encourage you to believe that with me, that God wants to speak to us through His Word. This is the God-breathed Word, and it's awesome. There's more here than I have time to talk about. Um, let me mention a helpful truth, okay? As we walk into this today... I want to just I want to put before you a helpful truth because we're going to come across a lot of names. Okay, almost 2000 years of of time with a lots of generations and names. So I want to give you just kind of a, a helpful truth. And here it is. Every generation since Adam and Eve till now until the last man standing, every single generation has had two groups of people. Those number one, those who obtain eternal life in heaven with God. The second group is those who suffer eternal suffering in hell. Okay, there's only two groups of people. Those who have eternal life and those who have eternal suffering in hell. And here, here's the truth I want you to see. Out of all those people, from Adam and Eve to the last person saved on the earth, every single one of them is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, He came kind of in the middle, didn't He? I'm telling you, every single one of them is saved by faith in that one who died on the cross and that one who's risen from the grave and is alive right now from Adam and Eve all the way to the last man standing. And I want to I read a verse to you about that. Hebrews eleven thirteen says this. Listen. These all died in faith. Who are these all? And if you read through Hebrews 11, you see he's talking about the people that we're going to read about today. He's talking about Enoch, people back there, Noah and Abraham. And it goes and the list goes on of these Old Testament saints that were in the world before Christ actually entered in to this world. And listen to what it says. They all died. How? In faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They look forward to these promises, were assured of them, embraced them. And confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So the point is this. From Adam and Eve to the last person saved on this earth. They have all been saved through faith in the one. If you're in the Old Testament. The one that's coming. Christ Jesus who's coming to save. Maybe they don't know everything about Him. But they knew. Even from Genesis 3.15. That there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. And every one of them have been saved by faith in Him. And then after Christ has come. We all look back to the Savior. And our faith is the one, our faith is in the one who has already come. So we're going to come across a lot of names. And there's going to be people in these names that are lost and they go to hell forever. They're there now. And there's people in these names that are saved and they have eternal life with God forever and ever and ever. And it all hinges on looking to Jesus Christ as Savior, faith in Him. Okay? Everybody got that down? All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 5. We're not going to read through the whole passage at once. We're going to start off just reading the first two verses. Now, these, 
These first two verses, they serve as like an introduction to the genealogy that's coming. Okay? They serve as an introduction. Let's read it. Verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So this is an introduction. Okay, It starts off with something called the Toledot. Okay, The Toledot. It says, the very first phrase, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Okay? That word, the, the word genealogy right there, some of your versions might say history. This is the book of the history. This is the book of the, the generations. That's a Hebrew word there. Toledo, to say it in my, my uh, accent. Toledo, okay? And so, so here's what you have. This is the second Toledo in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is broken up. It's broken up for us into ten Toledo's coming through. They almost stand as titles to this section of Scripture. Okay? Does that make sense? And so the reason that we're actually studying chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 8, is because that is the whole section. That's the Toledo. What you have in 5.1 is these are the generations. That's the title. And then when you get to chapter 6, verse 9, you're going to hear that same phrase again. These are the generations. Okay? This is the Toledo. So, so our second division or, or second Toledo division in Genesis is chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 8. So here's what we've seen so far in Genesis. We've had a section on Creator God. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Creator God, seven days of creation. Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, there He is. And then we had that first Toledot section, which is the fall of man. And it goes from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4. And it talks about the fall of man, how God poured out blessing on man, and then man rebelled against God, and then you see the sin spreading in their offspring as Cain rises up and murders Abel. So we're in the second Toledot section. Everybody see why we're going 5, 1 to 6, 8. Okay? Alright, so here's what I want to tell you. And I'm excited to tell you this. You know what this section's all about? I just told you you got like genealogies in chapter 5 and chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. You got this stuff that a lot of people aren't real sure what it means. And you know what this section's all about? It's all about Jesus. This whole section of Scripture is about Jesus, and I'm excited to tell you that, okay? Because this, gene- this genealogy is about Jesus. It's tracing the lineage. It's tracing the seed of the woman. Dustin taught on it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there was promise right after sin enters the world. It's promised that there's coming one through the line of Adam and Eve. There's coming one who's going to crush the tempter's head. That's the same one who later on would be, would it be said of him, he's gonna, he's the seed which is gonna bless all nations. He's the one that's gonna die for the sins of his people like a sacrificial lamb. And so what we have in chapter 5 verse 1, from Adam and this genealogy that runs us, Adam had a son named Seth, and that Seth had a son. And that son had another son. It takes us all the way up to Noah. And what we're seeing is the lineage traced out. This genealogy is all about Jesus. What we see in this section, I want you to see that this section is all about Jesus. What we see in this section is the great sinfulness of man. We're going to get there in chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And we're going to see the world just polluted and defiled in sinfulness. And so what this does, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, when we see this sinfulness, is showing us our need for the Savior. This section is all about Jesus. The genealogies lead us to the Christ. The, 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 
the uh, realization that man is desperately wicked in chapter 6 leads us to Christ because we realize that we need a Savior. We see in this section the terrifying judgment of God. Seriously, the this, this sin is prevalent on the earth and God is about to destroy everybody. But eight people, we see the terrifying judgment of God, which again leads us to the Savior. We know God judges sin. We need Jesus, the one who came for us. And it all ends, this whole Toledot section, it ends with this phrase in chapter 6, verse 8. And the phrase is this, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because the Savior is going to come through his lineage. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This whole section that we're reading, this Toledo section, is all about Jesus. I'm thankful to tell you that. I think it's an awesome truth, okay? So, here's what we get. In these uh, introductory verses, we also get uh, some connections, okay? Verse 1 and 2, some connections to what's already happened. When you read chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, you're hearing things that you've already heard in Genesis chapter 1, okay? So, for example, chapter 5, verse 1. In the day that God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He's reminded us of that, that man was made in the image of God. The image of likeness of God. So this, this Toledot section is getting, it's getting connected back to what's already going down in God's creation. Verse 2. He created them male and female. God did that. And He blessed them. And He called them mankind and the day were created. So we're reminded that God has poured out blessing. God has poured out goodness on these people. He blessed them. Made them male and female. Called on mankind. They are His own. And so He's blessed them, poured out goodness, and then man rebelled against God. In that second Toledot section. So, that leads us, so you got this introductory statement in verse 1 and 2, which leads us right into verse 3, where we're going to see the genealogy. So, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, all the way to verse 32, is the genealogy, okay? Now, before we read this genealogy, I want you to see something, okay? I want to say a few things. Why this genealogy? Let's just think through this. We're about to read a lot of verses about a family lineage, okay? Why this genealogy? Why genealogy right here? And I'll tell you this, and here's a couple of reasons. One is this. The Bible is not meant to be a collection of random stories like, like uh, Aesop's fables, okay? The Bible is not meant to be a group of random stories. This is one story. This book is one story from Genesis to Revelation running through. And unless you see that storyline, if you miss that storyline, you're going to miss a lot of things about the Savior. And so what this genealogy does, it connects us from the creation, from Adam and Eve in the creation, all the way up to Noah and the flood. So it's one story, okay? Another thing, why the genealogy? Why the genealogy in, in, in chapter 5? And I'll say this, it helps us to connect... The escalating sinfulness of man. We see that. We're going to see that in chapter 6. Of man's sin just escalating and escalating. Getting worse and worse. And that's going to get connected to the fall of man. Through this genealogy. So we see Adam. Adam's created. And we know that Adam has fallen. He's sinned against God. And then we get this genealogy. And as it unfolds and takes us all the way to Noah. And in Noah's time, we see desperately wicked people. It's connecting the fall of man with the escalation of sin that we see in chapter 6. I want you to think about that for a minute. Imagine, imagine what Adam saw over the span of his life. Imagine what he saw. It says he lived, we're going to read it in a minute. He lived on earth for 930 years. 
You imagine what he saw. Imagine the, the vivid uh, reality as he sees the effects of sin destroying people and people denying God and murder and rebellion and theft. And he just sees it spreading throughout his culture. Wickedness as he lives for 930 years. He, I want you to think about it. Think about how much he would have seen. He would have lived into the time of Methuselah. This is how long he would have lived. As we read this genealogy, we're going to come across a man named Methuselah. And he would have lived into his time. And then Methuselah died in the same year as the flood. This is just one generation and the next. And it takes us from creation to the flood. It's about a thousand, over a thousand six hundred years. So what I'm trying to get you to see is he saw this. Adam saw sin unfold. He saw the, the nature of sin, the effects of sin on his culture. He saw Romans 5.12 really lived out. Romans 5.12, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. That's Adam. And death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. He saw this in reality. He saw it lived out. And I just want you to think about something for a minute. As we see sin escalating till you get to the point where God rains down a flood and judges these people. As you see that, I want you to think about something. Wouldn't you think that the following generations after Adam would have learned from his rebellion? Wouldn't you think that? As, as it just unfolds and people get more and more sinful and worse and worse and worse. Wouldn't you think they would have seen what happened to Adam and learned something? And walked away from ungodliness? You would think that generation after generation would become more and more godly. That they would learn from the nasty effects of sin. And that they wouldn't be ungodly, but they'd be godly. That's what you would think, right? You would think that. But what you actually see happening here is they're going to be moving through this genealogy. And when we get into chapter 6, deeper and deeper into sin. Deeper and deeper into depravity. Why? Why is this true? Surely the more we learn, right? The more we learn about sin, we learn about it, we see the effects of it. Surely we'll step away from it, right? But, but why don't we see that happening right here? And I would say it's because our sin problem is deeper than a learning problem. Our sin problem and their sin problem is deeper than a learning problem. Our sin problem is deeper than the mind and it goes down into the heart where we are proven to be by nature haters of God and selfish before men. This is how we're proven to be as time goes on. So the more time you give mankind, the worse he becomes. The more time you give mankind, the worse they become. It's like a, like a virus left unchecked. It just spreads until it's time to be destroyed. And this is what the genealogy is helping us to see. Okay, all right, what else? Chapter 5. Why this genealogy? Why are we, we're about to read it. Why this genealogy? This genealogy helps us connect. We're talking about connections here. It helps us connect chapter 6, verse 8, where it says Noah found... I mean, God's about to bring down destruction, but Noah found grace in His sight. And it helps us connect that to that promise in Genesis 3.15 that there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. And the genealogy helps us connect that. The reason Noah found grace in His sight, Jesus is coming through this one. It's a reason for the genealogy, okay? One more thing before we read it. I want you to notice the pattern, Okay? In this genealogy, there's a repetitive pattern. I mean, it's just, it's just repetitive over and over again as you read it. And here's, and here's the pattern, okay? Here's the pattern. I'm going to give you five points that he's going to say about every generation. Number one is this. You get the age of the person when they had a son. Adam lived some, some years, had a son named Seth, 
Like that. So you get the age of the person when they had a son. Number two, this happens over and over again, repetitive. You get the amount of time that they lived after the birth of that child. So after he was born, they lived this many years. Number three, you hear this phrase over and over again. And had sons and daughters. And had, so they had this child, lived this many years, and had sons and daughters. More sons and daughters. Number four is this. You get a summation of the, all the person's years on the earth. How many years did they live on the earth? And you get a summation of their years. And then number five, last thing you see in the pattern, over and over and over again. We're going to need to learn from these patterns as you see this phrase, and he died. And he died. And he died over and over and over again for ten generations from Adam all the way to Noah. Now, that pattern, as you go through these ten generations, there's a few little places where, where the pattern is still there, but it gets slightly, uh, just slightly changed. The pattern breaks just slightly, and that's intentional. We're supposed to learn something when those, when those patterns change just a little bit, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Look, we're going to read it. And I want you to notice the things that I'm saying. Notice the pattern in every generation. Start in verse 3 and read with me. Get your eyes on it, please. And we'll go to verse 32. Verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his, own, after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Right, let's go to the next one. Verse six, Seth, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 9. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years. Years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Are you catching the pattern? Same pattern. Why is it done this way? Verse 21, we're going to see a little break in the pattern in Enoch's life. Listen, it's almost the same, but a little different. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years. That was different. And had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not for God took him. That was different. Verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years 
and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech, we're going to see a little difference in Lamech. Listen, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah. Now, something different here. We're going to get the, the definition or why he called his son Noah. And called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah, last generation, and Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begot Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. And we get a little bit of difference here. This We get three sons of Noah. And I want you to watch this. This happens here. And the pattern doesn't get completed until you flip over to chapter 9. Go to the end of chapter 9. Verse 28. Here's where the pattern ends. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And chapter 10 starts a brand new genealogy. All right, so you have these genealogies here, okay? So here, so what, I want you to think about this. The, the repetitions that we just saw. You saw the repetitions, those five points over and over again, right? Except they're a little bit changed in a few places. They should teach us something. Think about it. They could have laid this out very simply. He could have said, you know, Adam had Seth, had so-and-so, had so-and-so, had so-and-so, and they all died, except Enoch. And that would have been very simple, right? But instead, it doesn't do it this way. You've got this pattern of the way it gets laid out. You have this certain kind of pattern. So we're supposed to be learning something from the pattern. So what are these repetitions supposed to be teaching us in the genealogies? And I'll give you three main points here. Number one is this. It keeps saying, and they had sons and daughters, and had sons and daughters, and had sons and daughters. What is this meant to teach us? This means the blessing of God from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. God created them in the image of God. He blessed them and He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that's actually happening right here. Most people that do estimates on the population of the earth at the, at the time of the flood say that there was more people on earth in that time than there are today on the earth. You say, where did they come up with that? I'm glad you asked. Very quickly, they come up with that using uh, modern and also biblical population growth rates. And they plug that in and apply it to the 1,656 years that we have from creation to the flood. And they plug in the normal growth rate like, like that. And then, and then that, that gets you to a lot, a lot of people, not to mention they're living 900 something years. Which means they're having lots of babies and people ain't dying. There's a lot of people on the earth. Does this make sense? So one thing we're seeing is God's faithfulness to do this. He said, I bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and the earth is being filled up. And we see that in chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. That's the way this time is characterized. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth. There were a lot of people... On the earth at this time. Number two is this. We see the blessing of Genesis 3.15 being fulfilled. I can't tell. I know I keep mentioning it. But I can't tell you enough. This is the pattern we see. And so and so had a son. And then he had a son. And that one had a son. 
And then that one had a son. And then that one had a son. And you can take your Bible and you can trace it right up to the Christ. And then you get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see in the Gospels, it opens up that way. And it says, hey, Jesus is the one that came from, who came from, who came from, and it takes you all the way back to Abraham. And Luke takes you all the way back to Adam. That there's a connection here. God said there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. And these repetitions are letting us know this, that that one is coming, the Christ is coming. God's faithful to His Word. And number three is this. You keep hearing this. And he died. Just feel the weight of it with me, okay? Look at the end of verse 5. I'm going to say the verses. It's always the last few words. Always. Verse 5. And he died. Verse 8. And he died. Feel the weight of it. Verse 11. And he died. Verse 14. And he died. Verse 17. And he died. Verse 20, and He died. Verse 27, and He died. Verse 31, and He died. Skip over to chapter 9, verse 29. And He died. And this repetition is making us think of what? It's reminding us of the effects of sin and the certainty of death. We see the effects of sin here. And He died, and He died, and He died. We see the certainty of death in this repetition. This is a sober a sober reminder of this reality that it is a 100% chance that everybody in this room is going to die. It's a 100% chance that you will die. Unless you find a way to be like Enoch. And he dies. I want you to think about it. In the last hour, we've been meeting for close to an hour now, or over an hour now. Over 6,000 people on the earth just died in this last hour. Two people dying every couple seconds. Gone. Two gone. Two more gone. Two more gone. Died. Died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And this is what you see over and over again. This is reminding us of the sinfulness of man. This is the result of sin. Excuse me. God said in Genesis 2.16. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan said, you'll not surely die. And here we see it. And he died. And he died. And he died. It's a reminder of the justice of God. God will most definitely and justly punish sin. He will do that. And we see a little, we see a little visual, a vivid picture of that in the death of every single one of these men. Except Enoch. What about the slight breaks in the repetitions? So think about it. You got these repetitions. Your mind is on these things, the earth's populated, death is certain. Death is certain for everyone here. What are we supposed to learn from the slight breaks and the repetition? What are they meant to teach us? Okay. What you think about it. It's not just an accident. When you have, when you have this kind of repetition for 10 generations and then you get a little break in that repetition, that's not random. That's not an accident. I think of like a groom in a wedding. You got all the groomsmen that dress the same. There's a reason the grooms dress different. It's to highlight something. Okay, so this is what's going on here. Something's being highlighted every time you see a break in the repetition. So the first place we see a break is with Enoch. Let's read it again. Verse 21. Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, here's the difference. Enoch walked with God 300 years. And had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and, and listen to it. It doesn't say he died. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. 
For God took him. He was not, for God took him. So why? Why this special, this special mention here of a man that walked with God and then escaped death? He just walked with God and then, and then disappeared. Gone. No death for this man. Why special, special uh, mention of this in, this in this place? Okay, so here's what you need to know. To understand the meaning of Enoch's special story here, of Enoch's breaking the pattern, to understand the meaning of it, you must understand that two lineages are being traced out for you in Genesis 4 and 5. Two, listen to me. Two lineages are being traced out for you in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5. Look back at chapter 4 verse 16. If you were here when Dustin taught, he, he highlights this. That when Adam and Eve had Cain, they thought he was the one. She says something that makes it clear. They thought he was the one. The one, through who, the one that was going to crush Satan's head. But he ends up murdering his brother. And it says in verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. And Irod begot Mahujael. And Mahujael begot Methushael. That is how you say that. And Methushael begot Lamech. And it, goes, and it goes on. And what you see, and you see this genealogy that's coming from Cain. And where it ends is in Lamech. And Lamech has these sons. And when Lamech has these sons, these are wicked, ungodly, godless men. A godless line, a godless generation is coming from the lineage of Cain. And then it breaks off in verse 25. And look at verse 25. Chapter 4 verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. There's a new line. For God has appointed another seed. Another seed. For me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. And as for Seth. To him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Here's the seed, here's the lineage where men are calling on the name of God. This is a godly seed, a godly lineage. And what happens in chapter 5? In chapter 5, we get a further, uh, more details on the line of Seth. So you got two lineages traced out. The line of Cain, this ungodly lineage. And you've got this other seed, this other lineage traced out. This godly line of Seth. And we get it traced out for us in chapter 5. Okay, so here's something you need to know. So I want you to think about this. So, here's an interesting detail about these two lineages. An interesting detail about these two lineages, okay? It's about comparing. If you compare these two lineages in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5... Here's an interesting, an interesting detail. The genealogy of Cain does not give many details about its line until you get to the seventh generation from Adam, named Lamech. And it gives you all this detail about this man, how ungodly, how godless he is at the seventh generation after, after Adam, the seventh generation from Adam. So that's in the chapter four genealogy. Okay, but think about this. Likewise, the genealogy of Seth it breaks out into unique details at the seventh from Adam. So chapter 4, the seventh from Adam. This more details, a wicked man. Chapter 5, the seventh from Adam. More unique details. And guess who it is? Enoch. 
It's Enoch, a godly man. And I'm telling you, there's supposed to be a comparison here. That's supposed to be teaching you something. You're supposed to be comparing these two genealogies, these two lines. And the seventh from Adam on one side, a godless man. And the seventh, the seventh from Adam on another side, a godly man. Okay, they are both the seventh from Adam. There's a contrast being made. Now, in case you think I'm reading too much into that, let me read Jude verse 14 to you. Listen. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So he's trying to, he saw something and he saw something in the fact that there's a seventh from Adam. So here's what we're seeing. What are we supposed to be contrasting when we see these two lines and then we have Enoch here as the seventh from Adam? We're supposed to be seeing. That the ungodly, this ungodly lineage that lands in the seventh from Adam is Lamech. They have no hope. They have no hope before God. And yet the godly has hope over death as Enoch is translated on high and skips over death. You're supposed to be seeing this as you read it. Think about it. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So what's being put before us in the story of Enoch is not just a random a random encouragement to walk with God. It's not just a random. Two, two paths are being put before you. The broad path that leads to death and the, and the narrow path that leads to life. Two paths are being placed before you in the story of Enoch and the fact that he skipped death and disease and destruction and went straight to be with God. So think about it. Right in the midst of ten generations in Genesis chapter 5. Ten generations of and he died. And he died. And he died. And he's dead. And he's dead. And he's dead. It seems like God wants to show the people of God that there's some hope here. There's hope to be had. That there's something after death. Death can be escaped. And he wants them to see that in the life of Adam. One way you can see this, I want you to think about the timeline. If you had time to sit down and do the numbers about the timeline of Adam and how long he lived and how it overlapped the following generations... Here's something that you find. That Adam dies at 930 years in. 930 years in. And you know what happens just a few years after that before anybody else in the line dies? Enoch is translated on high. So what do you think that means? So you imagine, imagine this. Imagine, imagine Adam. The first man, the one, all this information, all the truth coming from Adam. The man that experienced it. The only one that has actually experienced the all-out presence of God with no sin to interrupt. There he is. And he's been living and living and living. And all of a sudden, he dies. Can you imagine what that felt like? Can you imagine the devastation of Adam just died? And then God before Seth or any of the rest of them die. He, all the rest of the generations still on earth and He takes a man and He allows him to skip death and ascend on high as if to say there is hope after death. Yes, in Adam there's death, but there's hope after death. Look at what I did with Enoch. So I think this is supposed to be a, an encouragement to us all. So, what's being put before us in these two genealogies and in the story of Enoch, what's being put before us is two paths. A path that leads to death, right? Genesis 4. The way of Cain, as it says in, in Jude 11. And the path that leads to eternal life with God. Those who escape this death are those who, like Enoch, walk with God. And Enoch walked with God and the Lord took him. 
Those who escape death one day are those who, like Enoch, walk with God. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to walk with God? Think about it. What does it mean? This is, this is drawing near to God. This is closest. When you think about somebody that walked with God, you're thinking about He was there with God. He walked with God. You think about somebody following God. This is a following of God. I want to follow Him. I want to see what He sees and does what he, do what He does. I want to do what He commands. I want to walk with Him. It's a man who walked with God. This is, this is faith. Faith like Enoch. Flip, flip with me. Hold your place and flip to Hebrews 11. I want to show you this place where it talks about Enoch. This gives you a little light. What does it look like to walk with God? It's, it's nearness to God, closeness to God, following God. And chapter 11, verse 5 gives us something else about Enoch. We're going to see Enoch's faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently Seeking. So here you have Enoch, a man of faith. He's walking with God. He trusts God. This is the picture of walking with God. He trusts Him. He believes Him. He believes that He is. He is the living God. And He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He's a rewarder of those who walk with Him. This is what it means to walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? We can read in Jude. You can flip with me to Jude. Chapter 14. Excuse me. Verse 14. And we're going to get a little reality. What does it mean to walk with God? This, this, this man, Enoch, had, he had some understanding about eternity. He had his mind on eternal things. A hatred, a hatred for ungodliness and his mind set on what's to come in eternity. Listen to what he preached in Jude 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. He's talking about these ungodly men. Saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. To execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among, among them. Of all their ungodly deeds. Which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This man's mind is on what's to come. That the Lord is going to return one day. And the ungodly will be punished. His mind's on eternity. Think about this. Think about what it means to walk with God as you look at Enoch. Everything rooted in faith in this God. And so this, so, so here's what you got. Out of this, out of this uh, story of Enoch springs a question and an encouragement. Okay, a question and an encouragement. Here, here's the question. The question is this: and You have to ask yourself this: Do you walk with God? Two paths are being put before you: a path that leads to destruction forever. And a path that leads to eternal life. And those who like Enoch walk with God. It says they, they go, they skip over death. Death has no power over them. Death has no reign on them. And they go to eternal life with God. Do you walk with God? Do you really? And I encourage everyone here to examine yourself in that. The question, do you walk with God? Are you on the path to eternal destruction? Or are you on the path to eternal life? Enoch walked with God. And here's the encouragement. If you do walk with God, this story is meant to fill your heart with hope that this ain't it. There's life after death. 
And this story of seeing Enoch, imagine if you were a part of that. Where did Enoch go? And somehow God reveals it to him that Enoch didn't have to die and die and die like the rest. But he went to be with God. So where's Enoch? He's with God right now. Oh man, I saw Adam die and it broke me. But you mean there's a way? You mean there's a way that, there's, that I could have life after death, eternal life? Enoch walked with God. And so this should be an encouragement to us all. How, do you think, do you think uh, Job, you think this is how Job knew about life after death? Listen to this verse. You don't have to flip there. Job 19. I want to read a verse to you. You think, this, you think knowing about Enoch is how Job knew this? Job 19. Listen. He says this. After my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You think the story of Enoch affected him? But what about David in Psalm 17, verse 14? Listen, listen to David. Psalm 17, verse 14. You think he was affected? You think he got this? He knew this because of what happened with Enoch? Listen, he says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He thought about it. There's a time I'm going to get to see God. I'm going to get to be with Him for all of eternity. Listen, listen to what, what Kent Hughes, Kent Hughes, a commentator, said on this. He said, Enoch was translated up to eternal life with God and was spared disease, death, and corruption. Why? For the consolation and encouragement of believers and to awaken them to hope of life after death. So here we got this contrast. And God wants us to know, just like He wanted everybody after Adam to know, that there's life to come after death for those who walk with God. All right, second break in the repetition is in Lamech, verse 28. So if you're, if you're not there, go back to Genesis 5. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Lamech, excuse me, Lamech. Let's read it again, 28 to 31. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and called his name Noah. All right, so here's Noah. And here's the break. Here's the break in the pattern. Nobody else did this, but he gives a reason for, for he gives the reason that he named him Noah. Listen, saying this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Lamech's naming of his son expresses his faith in God. So here's what we see in the life of Lamech. We see an expression of faith in God. And here's what I mean. Lamech seems to understand that there's something undesirable about this world that he lives in. There's something undesirable. And he connects it back to the fall of man when God cursed the ground. Look at what it says. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. He knows something's not right. And it's linked to God whenever God cursed this place in the fall of man. But he also knows this. Lamech seems to understand that deliverance from this curse is going to come from where? Come from where? This seed, this lineage, I'm going to have a son and there's going to be comfort that's brought. He sees that, that coming through this lineage, again, back into Genesis 3.15, there's coming one through your lineage that's going to crush Satan's head. And so he seems to understand these things. I believe Hebrews 11.13 could be applied to Lamech. And as you see his faith here, you could say it like this. Lamech, Lamech, he died in faith, not having received the promises, as you see that faith in this naming of his son, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, he embraced them. 
And he became assured of those promises and of what was to come. This brings so much glory to Jesus in my mind. Just think about it. Think about it. All the redeemed from Adam and Eve all the way to the last redeemed person on this earth. All eyes on Jesus. All eyes on Jesus. It brings him great glory. Great glory to Jesus. And the last one where the, the pattern in Genesis 5 gets messed up, gets uh, changed up a little bit, is Noah. Verse 32. Chapter 5, verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you get three sons in this account. And not only that, but you get a long break before you actually see him die. So in his story... We're going to see, okay, we got this two lineage. You got the, the ungodly line and the godly line. And in this story, we're going to see that godly line during the time of Noah become so corrupt that even the, even the godly lineage, even the godly seed has rebelled against God. And this is what we see as we continue on in Genesis chapter 6. And yet we're going to see God remain faithful and remain full of grace through it all. And his story is further explained in chapter 6. So let's go to chapter 6. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, okay? <clears throat> this is the sin-polluted world. A description of the sin-polluted world where even the line of Seth has been defiled. Listen to it. Now it came to pass when man, men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they had chosen. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, his yet his days shall be 120 years. There were Nephilim on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Alright, so first thing you see here, First thing I want you to notice, okay? You've got multiplication going on in the earth. I'm talking, there's people all over the earth at this point when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. So you see that and yet you see sin is dominating this place. 2 Peter 2.5 calls this, this time period. 2 Peter 2.5. This is what it calls this time period. The world of the ungodly. The world of the ungodly. The world of the ungodly. This is what you have going on as men multiplied on the face of the earth. And so the, the things that follow, as I said earlier, are hard to interpret. The things that follow are hard to interpret. But here's what I can tell you. Even if we can't be totally dogmatic about certain truths that we find in these four verses, we can be convinced about the primary point. There is a point of it all. And we can be absolutely convinced there. And here's the point. Man is desperately sinful and has rebelled against God. There's rebellion going down in these four verses. And if you don't totally get what, what exactly is happening here, you know that the main, the primary point is that man has rebelled against God. Man is desperately sinful. The first four verses shows the external picture of that. It shows you a scene where the sons of man marry, the, excuse me, the sons of God marry the daughters of men. And what you get there in these first four verses is a glimpse into a worldwide, worldwide Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what you're seeing here. It's full of sexual immorality. We know that to be true from those verses. It's full of worldliness and godlessness. You know that to be true 
from these verses. And in this place, even even the godly line begins to be snuffed out and walk in ungodliness. This is what you see. And then this is the external picture in the first four verses. And then when you get to verse 5, when God sees them, He's going to dive deep into the heart. He's going to see what's going on in the heart. So even if you don't understand these first four verses, as we talk about them, you know in verse 5 that the heart of the matter is they were desperately wicked. Every, as it says in verse 5, every intent of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. This is the picture. But let's get into some of these parts quickly that are hard to interpret. Okay, Let's talk about them for a minute. First part that's hard to interpret here. Sons of God. The sons of God, it says in verse 2, saw the daughters of men. Well, who are the sons of God? That's the question. Some people say, two major interpretations here. Some people say those are angels. And they say that because there's other places in the Scriptures, like in Job, where the angels are called the sons of God. And some people say it's not angels, it's actually that line of Seth. I mean, we've got two lineages put here. We've got an ungodly lineage and a godly lineage. And some people say it's that godly lineage of the line of Seth. That's the sons of God, the children of God. Okay? Now, the sons of God, they would say that these are fallen angels. That From that, that uh, angel interpretation, that these would be fallen angels. Okay? Now, here's the problem with the angel interpretation. Let me give you the problem quickly. Number one is this. Why would fallen angels, a.k.a. demons, be called sons of God? Okay, why? And that's a confusion to me. That pushes me away from that view. Number two is this. God's response in this situation is to confront mankind. The flood is coming down to judge mankind, not fallen angels, not demons. So that's problem number two. And you see that when, when he says in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. That's his response. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And number three, uh, problem with that interpretation is this. It just doesn't seem to fit into the flow of Genesis, in my opinion. Now, a lot of people think this way. So, take what I'm telling you and you go back and study it on your own. But I'm telling you, it doesn't seem to fit as the, the line of the Sethites does into the, into the flow of thought of Genesis. So that's hard to interpret number one. Hard to, hard to interpret number two is this. What are those 120 years in Genesis 6-3? What are these 120 years? Is it talking about a decrease in man's lifespan on this earth? Like in other words, they're living, they're living 900 plus years. Does it mean that now they're not going to live that long? 120 years is going to be their time. Or does it mean God is saying, in 120 years, I'm bringing down the flood. It's coming down on men. Which one does it mean? Here's the problem with the lifespan. If you, if you say, well, I think the lifespan is, is coming down from 900 some years down to no more than 120. The problem with that is there's in the genealogies after the flood, there are men who live longer, much longer than 120 years, which makes that a big problem. Third hard to interpret part is this. Who are the Nephilim? Chapter 6, verse 4. It's just a hard word to interpret. It's only used one other place in the Scriptures in Numbers 13. The Nephilim. Uh, some of your versions might say giants. I think it's not a very good translation there. It doesn't mean giants necessarily. So what, what is the deal? What is the Nephilim were on the earth in those days? What is that talking about? So all I'm doing is trying to present to you. These are the parts that, are, that seem to be hard to interpret. Now let me give you my opinion on these things. Okay? This is what I think. As I've studied it and looked at it, this is what I think 
these things mean. So first one is this. Who are the sons of God? I believe that the sons of God is, is, the, is talking about the godly line of Seth. That's what I believe that he's talking about here. Okay, we've been given two lineages. It's clear that we're supposed to be comparing these two lineages, the, God, the ungodly and the godly. And now what we see is the godly line is being defiled. As if to say, sin is being spread all over the earth to the point to where even that godly lineage of Seth is being corrupted. And so he's about to rain down the flood. This is, this is what I think that verse means. Uh, sons of God, uh, the followers of God through the line of Seth. You see this in other places in Scripture where, the, where the, the children of Israel are called the children of God. You see things like this. I don't think that's far-fetched. There's other people that have thought this way. This should not be the nail in the coffin for you. But I just want you to know that I'm not crazy. Okay? There's other people that thought this way. Augustine thought this way. Luther thought this way. Calvin thought this way. Matthew Henry thought this way. That shouldn't nail it down for you at all because there's many people that don't think that way, but at least it would make you consider what do they mean, okay? What does this mean? Second thing is this, plain sense. What was, if that's who the sons of God are, what was their sin? What are these people's sin? What did they do wrong? And what their sin is, is they begin to mix with the wickedness of the world. They begin to mix so that even the godly lineage is being Corrupted and defiled by the, wor- by the world. The salt has lost its saltiness. This is the picture. The salt has lost its saltiness. And I want you to see this. God's response to this wickedness. and this, the, the world is being corrupted. And then God's response to this in chapter 6 verse 3 is what? My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And I believe he said in 120 years. I'm bringing down the flood. It's coming. It's coming. I'm going to judge man. The flood's coming in 120 years. There are a few problems with that. One problem is it says at the end of chapter 5. That Noah is 500 years old. It says the flood waters began when he was 600 years old. That's only 100 years. But I'm thinking as I think through this, if you read the first verse, it says in the days that they were multiplying. So I don't think it's nailing it down to Noah had to be 500 years old when God said that. Okay, so I believe he's saying he's going to bring the flood. Last, last little detail of plain sense of it, okay? We're going too fast? Okay. Who are the Nephilim? Who are the Nephilim? Uh, and why are we told about the Nephilim in verse 4? Okay, I've already told you this word is hard to define. What does this word mean? Uh, but I believe that chapter 6 verse 4 defines it for us. The Nephilim are the mighty men, the men of renown. Think about it like this again. There were Nephilim on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. I believe the Nephilim are mighty men. It's a, it's a word Meaning something, okay? It means something. All, they, all they've done is transliterated it over from the Hebrew. And so we got this word Nephilim. What does it mean? And they do that because they don't know what it means in a lot of ways. I think it means the mighty men. There's, these are mighty men. These are famous men. Men of renown is the idea here. It's certainly not a race of people. The Nephilim are not a race of people because it just said they were there in these days and also afterwards. So to say it's just a race of people would mean that they had survived the flood. But they didn't, nobody survived the flood but eight people. Nobody survived the flood. So this is a description of a kind of people. Mighty men. Leaders. Like, like uh, Nimrod is called a mighty man in Genesis chapter 10. He became one of these mighty men or men of renown. Famous men. These are the men that the culture looked to. The leaders and the, 
the men of renown, the Nephilim. Okay? Now, why are we told about them? Why are we told about the Nephilim? The idea, here's what I think the idea of Genesis 6 4 is. The idea is that the Nephilim or the, the leaders, the, the famous men, they came from this union of the godly line of Seth that had fallen away and, and, and had become ungodly and corrupted with the world. And the sons of God took the daughters of men. Okay? The, the, this, so, so here's the picture. These are, the, these are the leaders. These are the men of renown. These are the men everyone looked to, which tells you a lot about a culture. And yet they were godless men. So the, the men that were lifted up as leaders were godless men. The men that were lifted up as famous men were godless men in this culture. It had gotten very, very bad. Okay? Now, this section of Scripture that we're just reading, verse 1-4, through 4, is showing an external, it's an external uh, description of this is what the world looked like. This is the sinfulness of man before the flood came. And it's marked by conformity to the wickedness of the world. You see them conformed to the wickedness of the world. And it's also marked by sexual immorality. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Godliness was not on their minds. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh is what was on their minds. And yet you see that even in the midst of the rebellion of even the sons of God, the rebellion of even that godly line, and what you see right in the middle is reason to glory in God's patience. Why? Because he says 120 years. 120 years, he's going to endure. He's going to endure this godlessness and this wickedness for 120 years before he pours down this flood. You see the patience of God right in the midst of it. Think about it. Justice will be rained down on their wickedness. Yet his justice is marked by patience. His justice is marked by patience. The justice of God is not. I want you to think about the justice of God for a minute. The ju- How do you view the justice of God? It's not temper tantrums. It's not God got really... Is He angry towards sin? Absolutely. But God never throws a temper tantrum. Okay? Is He angry towards sin? Yes. But He's not just quick tempered right here. This is the patience of God mixed with the judgment of God. This is who our God is. This is the kind of justice that He has. In fact, let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Listen. Who formerly were disobedient. Some of these, pe- these people that were disobedient. Who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering. He's called the divine long suffering. The divine patient one. When once the divine long suffering waited. In the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared. In which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. What a picture. If you got this, is our God patient? Yes, He does not. The flood was not a temper tantrum from God. God waited and, and showed long suffering. He, he, doesn't desire, he doesn't delight Himself in the death of the wicked. He doesn't do that. So He waits and He waits and He waits and then He pours out the judgment. Everybody on earth dies but eight people. And so we see the justice of God and the patience of God slamming together. Okay, so primary point of these four verses, we move on. We're going to move on. Primary point is this. Sin had become so dominant on the earth that even the godly line, the sons of God, had been defiled, had been corrupted. The salt had lost its saltiness. And now God is about to pour out 
He promises to pour out justice, pour out judgment on these people. And in pouring out and destroying all flesh, He's going to show His justice. And not only that, in pouring out this, this flood and the judgment of God, He's going to do something else too. He's going to protect that godly line of Seth. He's going to protect the seed that's coming that's going to crush Satan's head. You imagine the pressure around Noah and these people at this time. And, and, and the, the temptation to be defiled as even his brothers and his sisters and other sons and daughters are destroyed in the flood. And these temptations and pressures on him. And God is about to protect that line. This is about Christ. This is about the promised seed. Chapter 6, verse 5-8. through eight. We're going to see the Lord take action. Okay? Here's where the Lord takes action. We're going to read it and you can really break it down in every verse. Okay, before I read it. Verse 5, you're going to see the Lord saw. Verse 6, you're going to see the Lord grieved. Verse 7, the Lord said. And verse 8, but Noah. But Noah. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and was grieved in His heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So let's start with the Lord saw. Verse 5. He saw the wickedness of man. Think about it. Every intent of the thought of his heart, only evil continually. And what you see is he sees in a man's heart. God sees deeper than the external things going on in the first four verses. He sees deeper in. He sees into the heart. And so, so often you hear people say stuff like this. Well, I know I did this, did that. But, but look, God knows my heart. And they say it like it's a good thing. They say like it's a good thing. But Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is desperately wicked. Beyond your understanding, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I tell you who can know it. God can know it. He looks into the hearts of man and you see it right here. Desperately wicked hearts. God looked on the human race and you know what He saw? Utter depravity. Depravity of man. You cannot find another sentence in the Bible that displays the depravity of man like that sentence in verse Think about it. Not only does he say man's heart is evil, but he says the thoughts of man's heart is evil. And not only does he say the thoughts of man's heart is evil, but he says the intent of the thoughts of man's heart is evil. And not only does he say the intent of the thoughts of man's heart is evil, but he says every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is evil. And not only does he say every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is evil, but it says the intents of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil. And not only is it only evil, but the intents of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil what? Continually. 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 Man left to himself is desperately wicked. And beyond, beyond healing. Man's depravity began, think about this, this verse showing man's depravity. Man's depravity began in the Garden of Eden when the first parents of ours rebelled against God. And man's depravity began there. Man's depravity was put on horrific display as the third person on the planet rises up as a murderer and a hater of God in Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Man's depravity is made evident in the in. In, uh, in the line of Cain, as you see in Genesis 4, generation after generation after generation that hates God. 
And then now you see the, the depravity of man on display as generations, 1,656 years has gone by and mankind is desperately wicked beyond cure. Desperately wicked beyond cure. And we all say, man, humans need a Savior. That's what we say. Humans need a Savior. That's what we need. A Savior. Next part in verse 6 says, The Lord was grieved, and the Lord was sorry. Think about that. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. This is an amazing verse. Please don't miss this verse. God was sorrowful and pained in His heart. It says He was sorry. It means sorrowful. It says He was grieved in His heart. It's literally, He had a pain in His heart. Did you know God could feel this way? Did you know that? That he could be grieved in his heart. And what caused these feelings? The root of God's sorrow and grief was not that he had created man. That's not the root of it. Remember, it says when he created man, he saw that everything was good. It was all, in fact, very good. The root cause of God's sorrow and grief was not even in punishing man. In fact, punishing man was the way he was going to preserve man. Because through Noah was coming to Christ, it would bring salvation to all who look to Him. So what is the source of God's grief? And it's the sinfulness of man. Think about it. Verse 5 tells you what he saw. He saw the intent and the wickedness and the evil of man's heart. And he was moved with grief and sorrow. Understanding. I want you to do this. I want us to be people that understand the justice of God. The justice of God is displayed in the flood. It's displayed very, very vividly in the flood. But I want us to be a, be a people that understand God's justice rightly. And when you understand that God was grieved in this justice, it helps you. Here's what it helps you see. God's justice and judgment is not just heartless. It's not heartless and just mechanical. It's not. He was sorrowful and grieved in his heart over this situation. Don't you remember Jesus? The display of God. Remember Jesus? It says he wept over Jerusalem who rejected him. He wept over them. There's a grief here. God does not emotionlessly pour out his wrath. The Bible says that our God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Let that inform you about the justice of God. God's justice is not robotic. He feels pain in his heart. You remember even Paul said that you can grieve the Holy Spirit by your sin. It's not robotic. Kenneth Matthews, uh, another commentator, he said it like this. God is not a dispassionate accountant overseeing the books of, hum of the human endeavor. Rather, he makes a personal decision out of sorrowful loss to judge Noah's wicked generation. So is God, is God angry because of sin? Yes. Will God pour out His wrath on every single ounce of sin in this world from Adam to the last man? Will He? Yes. Absolutely He will. But we need to recognize that He does not delight in the death of the wicked and His punishment is never cold-hearted. It's never cold-hearted. Next verse says, verse 7, The Lord said, okay, so, so the Lord said, The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creepy thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So here we see the judgment of God. We see, do, do you rightly view the judgment and justice of God? Do you? 
Do you have right views of God when it comes to His justice and His judgment? Do you have right views of that? Well, how does this inform you? Everybody's about to die but eight people. What does that and how does that inform you about God's justice? The, the, I, I can't I say this because the doctrine of God's justice and judgment is so important. You must cling to it. You must you must protect it. It's so important. In fact, it, this doctrine is the first doctrine that Satan attacked. Right. He said, you'll not surely die. God won't be just. God won't bring down His judgment on your sin. You will not surely die. First doctrine that's being attacked. It's the only doctrine that we know of that Enoch, who pleased God, preached. He said He's coming back and He's going to destroy all the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds and all the ungodly things they say. The justice of God is very important. And we know that God's justice, we just read it, it's not without mercy, it's not without compassion, it's not without love, it's not without grief, it's, not, it's there in His justice. And yet we know at the same time that no sin will be left unpunished. Not one sin will be left unpunished. Every sin represented in the room will be punished. Either you will be punished for your own sin... Or your sin will be laid upon the Savior, Christ Jesus. Every person who puts their faith in Christ, their sin is laid on the Savior. And He takes the wrath. And that sin is punished on Him. No sin is ever swept under the rug. Ever. Ever. Because our God is a just judge. A God who's angry with the wicked. Every day. This sort of universal judgment is going to come again. Let me read 2 Peter to you. 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen, it's going to come again. I'm going to start in verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So he's talking about this judgment we're reading about over in Genesis. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved, here's the next judgment, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, and judgment will rain down Again, and God will not pass over one ounce of sin. Either you must take it or you must give it to Christ. And He takes it for you. Now that little idea that there's a way that your sin can be removed through Jesus Christ. There's a way it can be removed and you can like Enoch skip over death and have eternal life with Him. That fact brings us to the next verse and the last verse. Verse 7. But Noah... But Noah, so you got, you got the, the, the Lord saw, saw the wickedness, you got that. You got the Lord was grieved and the Lord, and the Lord said He's going to bring down punishment, but Noah. And that's an awesome two words, but, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The grace of God comes in like a beam of light in darkness. The grace of God. What is the grace of God? This is the undeserved favor of God. Noah did not deserve it. Noah, like everybody else, deserved to drown in that flood. Noah, like everybody else, is just a sinner that deserves to, to burn in hell forever. But the gracious eyes of God land on this poor sinner, Noah. And he's preserved from the flood. He's delivered from destruction. 
He's saved from the coming judgment. The grace of God is mainly expressed in Jesus. You know that, right? The grace of God that we just saw in Noah is mainly expressed in Jesus Christ. Okay, here's what I mean. God showed grace to Noah, not just for Noah, but for all people who will look to Jesus Christ and become children of God. He shows grace to Noah because through Noah is coming the Christ, the Savior of the world. The grace of God is mainly shown through Christ Jesus, the Savior. Grace is poured out on every single person who comes to God, walks with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And every single one of them have, have the grace of God poured out on them. John 1.17 The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.9 You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Acts 15, 11. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there we are, about to be nailed by the flood of God's judgment. Being justified. Freely, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The grace through the redemption, He bought us back through His blood that's in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 In Jesus we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of His grace. But Noah found grace in His sight. But Noah, this, this whole, but Noah, think about it. God sees sin. God is grieved. God says, I'm going to wipe out the whole human race. And then, but Noah, you know what that reminds me of? Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. That famous but God passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear it again in the context of Noah. And you, it's all of us here. And you being made alive, excuse me, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead as a doornail. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, even those in Noah's day. And listen, but God... But God, but Noah, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. But Noah, but God, okay? Let me leave you with a couple of things. Let me leave you with this first. These verses, Genesis 6, verse 5 through 8, they give you a good gospel outline, okay? So let me just leave that with you, a gospel outline. So use, I'll explain it, but, but use the gospel outline. If you're here and you don't know Christ, apply it to yourself. I want you to come to Jesus. And if you're here and you know Christ, and this outline will help you, help you use it. Use it. As you preach the gospel, you go out with this glorious message. Use this gospel outline found 
in verses 5 through 8. And you see it in just what I already said. God saw in verse 5 our depravity. We are by nature desperately wicked and God sees it. That's point one. Point two is this. God's greed and God said. God's greed and God said. Verse 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 6. And what we see in that is God is love and yet God is just. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But He will not clear the guilty. He's both of these. And the only way that you can experience the love of God, the only way you can do that is where His justice was poured out on Christ Jesus. You must come to Christ. To His cross. Where His blood was shed. A day is coming. And we see His patience in this. But a day is coming where the, the hand of God's patience, the hand of His mercy, is going to be yanked back forever and you'll never have another chance. Ever. Listen to this verse. It applies to what we're saying. Matthew 24. Listen. Listen to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. But as the days of Noah were, that's what we're reading about, the days of Noah. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that second judgment that's coming when the Son of Man returns. Just like the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Imagine that in their day, everything seemed fine. I just got married a week ago. But then this flood came and took me away. And I'm done forever. And it would be the same way in the next one. That there's a day coming where God's just, justice is going to be poured out. And His hand of patience will be pulled back. Never to be seen again. But Noah. But Noah. You think of the story. And I think, I think but Jesus. But Jesus, Jesus who came, He came on a rescue mission to save. Jesus who died, He suffered in your place. Jesus who rose, He's still alive and able to save. Jesus who always lives to make intercession for those who just come to Him in faith. And Jesus who's coming again one day, He's going to return. And He's going to set all things right. Christ Jesus. Let me leave you with one more thing, one more thing also, last thing. We have just covered almost 2,000 years of time. <laughs> 2,000 years of history. And guess who it was all about? <coughs> From Adam and Eve all the way to the flood, all the way to Noah. We just covered almost, I think it's 1,656, something like that. Years of history. And guess who it was all about? Jesus the Savior, right? Jesus our Lord is all about Him. Imagine, G imagine Jesus in Luke 24. When he takes, He's risen from the dead. And He goes and He gathers up His disciples. And He gets them there. And, and, and He begins to walk them. It says, beginning in Moses. That's Genesis 1. Beginning in Moses. He, and all the way through the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. He began to expound themself, Himself in the Scripture. The things concerning Himself. <clears throat> So he gets to Genesis chapter 5. And he said, that was my great, 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 great grandpa right there. And there's my next one. And there's my next one. And there's my next one. And look how God is just preserving the seed. And look right there when Enoch, when Enoch ascended on high and missed death. That points to me. I can deliver you from death. And when Lamech had that faith and he knew that something was messed up because of the curse. But there's one coming through the seed. He was thinking about me. 
Imagine him walking him through the scriptures right there. And he says, but Noah found grace in his sight because I was coming through that one. And I'm the salvation boat. I'm the one that saved him from the judgment. And I'm the one that can save anybody from the judgment. You imagine that. 2,000 years of history and it's all about Jesus. So my encouragement to you, don't waste your 80 or less years on anything else. Let it be about Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And God, I pray that You would let it sit in our hearts, God, and have an impact on our souls. Lord, help us. Help us to, help us to give everything we have, God, to follow You, to walk with You like Enoch, Lord. God, I praise You that Noah found grace in Your sight. And I praise You, Lord, that through Him You sent a Savior. And I praise You, God, that so many here in this room have found grace in Your sight. Thank You for Your glorious grace. And help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.